What happens when a chef, a critic, and a culinary writer get together for a totally unscripted conversation? Welcome to Three Ingredients, a show about the world of food. I'm Ruth Reichel, and I've spent my whole life writing about it. I'm Nancy Silverton, America's busiest chef, and the woman who made sourdough bread making a household obsession. And I'm Laurie Ochoa, General Manager of Food at the Los Angeles Times and Happy Tripe Eater. Because if you're going to eat meat, you shouldn't let the good parts go to waste. This week, we ask, what is the real difference between home cooks and restaurant chefs? One secret? Nancy says she's never thought of herself as a chef. We ask why. Plus, do you plate your takeout food or eat it right out of the container? Ruth and Nancy go head-to-head on Basque cheesecake recipes. And did Nancy just revolutionize the carrot cake? Take a seat at our table and join us for a far-reaching and delicious conversation. By the way, all our episodes live over at threeingredients.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff, including written pieces and discussion threads. You can support the show there or sign up for free. So each episode of Three Ingredients lands right in your email. That's threeingredients.substack.com. I wanted to talk about the difference between chefs and home cooks, um, specifically because you and I did a thing in New York the other day about your wonderful new cookbook. And the cookbook is about finding the perfect recipe for each of these sort of iconic dishes. And when you were talking about it, you talked about you know how you did these things over and over and over again until you got it as good as you thought it could possibly be. And that strikes me as very much the kind of thing that a chef does and not, you know, for me, most of the time, good enough is, is fine. But do you think really all chefs or good chefs do that? Meaning a lot of times when I go out, I think, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm talking to the imaginary chef, and sometimes I don't even know who that person is or what that person looks like, but I'm thinking, did you really taste that? And I'm not talking about a mistake. I'm not talking about, well, that was really undercooked or that was a little overseasoned or underseasoned. I'm talking about the flavor profile and how it just doesn't work, right? So when you're asking that question, the difference between a chef tasting over and over again and a home cook, we're assuming that all chefs do that. But isn't it also about, I mean, Ruth, you and I were talking about the difference between Nancy's panna cotta recipe and your panna cotta recipe and how yours was very simple and Nancy's had more steps, but had, you know, so there's something about also, you know, even in your book, Nancy, there are things that are basic, but you, what's great about your recipes is that you explain why like things are happening in the cooking process. So I don't know, there might be something, 
you know, I also think about one time, um, you know, there's this difference between cooks and chefs and even eaters and chefs. Chefs have this way of, um, I remember when Jonathan once brought you guys some takeout, something, you know, he had brought, I don't know, maybe some birria or something. And he presented it to you and Mark at Campanile. And Mark felt the need to replate it and and make it look beautiful. And it's just like, you know, instead of just eating it right out of the container. I mean, there's just something about a chef that you can't stand. It has to look a certain way. It has to taste a certain way. There's certain levels of, you know, complexity that you add, but that make it better and more beautiful. And although home cooking is fantastic too. So there's, I don't know, there's something there. That's okay. Something- wait, you're, this is a d- different issue. I have to say my family laughs at me all the time because I will not eat out of takeout containers. I won't so either. Food gets delivered to my house. I am not a chef, but I, you know, I plate everything, put it all into bowls. I can't stand yep. the idea of eating out of tinfoil and cardboard. Right. And it has nothing to do with the fact that you're hiding that it's a takeout food. It's not like pretending like if you have company, oh, I made all this, right? It's nothing about that. It's just about eating properly, which is plated properly. And I may add that to when you're done with the meal and there's leftovers, sorry guys, but putting it away properly, you will not find a takeout container in my house. I always put them into proper containers because it's really important to me when I open my refrigerator, what my refrigerator looks like. Your refrigerator is so beautiful. Thank you. I'm I'm jealous. <laughs> but but I have to say I think it depends. So last night I had chicken rice from this great, you know, Hainan chicken rice place cluck to go. And they serve the chicken in a container that has the rice in one side and the chicken in the other. And there are times, of course, yeah, well, I'll put it, I'll put takeout food on a plate and do what you do, Ruth. But in this case, it just I thought, you know, it's all looks good. And I'm not going to do the dishes for, you know, you know, then you have to like, do all, but I, what I did do though, was I took, when you take off the sauce containers and all, all that, I took all of that away from the table because I didn't want that all over the table. So I'm kind of like maybe in between both of you guys. See, it just tastes better to me it does. when it's e- eaten off of a nice plate. Um, but I want to go back to the issue of perfection which is right. what I feel like good chefs aim for. Okay, I like that. And, good chefs. And and something less, which is what I think most home cooks are, you know, if you serve something and everybody goes, oh, this is really delicious, you're not going to say, now, how could I make that a little bit better? And I think a, chef, a good chef does say, I mean, you know, I look at, for instance, in your cookbook, your recipe for Basque cheesecake. I love Basque cheesecake because it is the easiest recipe that anybody ever did. I mean, it basically, it takes you five minutes to put it together and people go crazy for it. They love it. And, you know, it's just an incredibly cheap trick. You have figured out a way to make it better, but it's also more work. And first of all, Dave Barron, figured out how to make it better because it's his recipe and I think it's perfect. But how how is it different than your recipe? Do you remember? My, reci- 
My recipe is basically you take two pounds of cream cheese, six eggs, um, a little bit, a, a little bit of cream, and if you want a little bit of vanilla, you put it in a food processor and then you pour it into a parchment lined bowl or pan and bake it. I mean, it literally takes it, it takes longer to unwrap the stupid cream cheese than it does to put the rest of the ingredients together. And That's how it. is Dave but how is Dave's different? Oh, it's there are a million steps in it. I started to make it and then I thought, I'm doing this. Wait, well, what steps what did you not want to do? I just looked at the recipe. I literally started out to do it and it was just Oh, come on. This is going to take me more than five minutes. I'm not going to do it. Well, so what you're doing is you're calling yourself a home cook. I, I am a home cook. <laughs> I right. mean, I never and went so, to cooking school. Okay. So now let's talk about that difference. Okay. Because, um, Lori, when you just to go back to that panacota, let's compare the two panacotas, Ruth and Nancy's. The panacota was the panacota. They're both really simple, but probably in that recipe, you're looking for what I with the components that I put with them to kind of embellish that panacota and make it kind of restaurant uh restaurant level rather than that simple panacota, which is delicious, you know. So that's what I did with it. But I wanted to say that panacota was just probably ours are very similar. It was. There just, were there were there were sauces and there was all kinds of stuff to go with it. Right. There was even something for how to do the whipped cream, I think. Right. But I think what you're saying about, uh, my, my book and I, and I, what makes me the proudest about it was that I didn't stop until I feel like I got to the place where I thought it was the best version it could be. But also I felt that after somebody was done making it and took that first bite, I felt like 80% of the time, at least they would say, okay, this is the best version of that that I'm eating. And that's what I, that was my mission. And, um, because I really had the time during that year that I wrote it, which was 2021, uh, things just weren't busy at the restaurants for obvious reasons that I really had the time to go over and over and over again. And so there were many things that I did in that book that I've told some of my fellow bakers and they're like, of course, why didn't I think of that? Meaning why didn't I think of roasting carrots and incorporating them into a carrot cake so the carrot cake really tastes like carrot cake, right? Or why didn't I think of after I creamed my corn for my cornbread, instead of discarding that milkiness that's left after you cream that corn, why didn't I think of heating it up, turning it into a pudding, adding that back and actually having a cornbread that tastes like corn? So there were so many uh, examples of that, including um, the first, well, as soon as the book was released, the first sort of uh, question came into the publisher, which was, I'm making the peanut butter cookies and I think there's a mistake. The recipe calls for two tablespoons of vanilla paste. That can't be right. Now it can't be right because whoever is calling that question in, obviously, is looking at their other peanut butter cookie that asks for a half a teaspoon of peanut, of vanilla paste. Now, my answer to that is I'm not I'm not being swayed by all those other recipes. 
I'm sorry. I say that I have a good palate and I know that you girls have excellent palates, but if you can taste when there is a half a teaspoon of vanilla paste in any recipe, hats off to you. Plus taking in mind that usually half of that amount gets stuck on the spoon itself. So when I put two tablespoons in, it's because two tablespoons were needed to taste that it was there. Because if you're going to use an expensive ingredient like vanilla paste, you may as well taste that there's vanilla there. Yeah, that's how I feel about saffron. You know, yeah. every time something says, you know, use like three, three threads, <laughs> three threads, it's like, no, excuse me. Saffron costs the earth. It tastes really delicious. But when I use saffron, I want you to know that it's in there. Right. But, but the that's kind of thing what... about those cookies, though, Nancy, is that when I eat that cookie, which is so fantastic, I mean, I taste the peanuts and things. I don't, I just know it's delicious. I don't say, oh, that's vanilla. And I don't think you want no. someone to know the specific ingredient. You just want it to just taste fantastic. Right. To be the whole thing layered and the whole thing contribute to its final flavor, right? But I think that home cooks, you know, I think what happens, and I think this happens to uh, poor chefs, or I should say less talented chefs or less obsessed chefs, is look, at you put in a lot of work. Oftentimes you spend a lot of money in preparing something and you just want to convince yourself that it's good, right? Because it's very disappointing if it's not. And I feel that that happens with a lot of chefs, you know, that they they stop the process of the development of a dish far too early in the process. So can we go back to the Basque cheesecake though? Because, so Ruth, you talked about your five minute version, but Nancy, what was it about Dave Baran's recipe that you loved that you thought, oh, this is what makes it the best Basque cheesecake? A couple things. And, and it goes back to that, the first time I ate it. So the first time I ever saw this burnt cheesecake, and I didn't know it that it was a Basque cheesecake because it didn't have a name. It was at this uh, a restaurant in London called Brat, and it was a restaurant that was a very rustic restaurant, and it all sort of focused around not only his stove, but certainly his wood burning oven and his wood burning grill. Um, and to walk into this very rustic restaurant and the the open kitchen shelf was lined with these burnt cakes with burnt parchment paper, encased in burnt parchment paper. And I was just so taken by, wow, what a way to set the mood of what's to come, right? But I didn't know what they were. Or sorry, I didn't know what this was called. I didn't know it because I had read about Bass Cheesecake, but I didn't put the two together. A few months after that, I went to Dave Barron's restaurant, Dialogue, and there for dessert, he sent me this, what he called a Basque cheesecake that he had been working on. And it was like, wow, thank you for giving this a name. And I need to know how you made that, right? And that's sort of what it was. It was early on in the Basque cheesecake craze. Okay, now, of course... It's everywhere. And that's why I included it in the book, by the way, is along with um, just what I call a New York style cheesecake and the American style, the other kind of cheesecake with the cream cheese frosting and the sour cream top. But I included it in because it became so popular 
um, rightfully so. And what I love about his is that when it comes out of the oven, it's it's completely burnt. It's very jiggly. And when you slice into it, it weeps and it's, it's delicious. And I agree with Ruth. One of the simplest things to make, and also maybe mine's a little bit longer or maybe Dave's is, but it, there's not technique in there. There might be steps. What, and what are those steps that make it so good? Well, I mean, steps meaning, um, and you forgive me because I don't have my book in front of me. And again, it's not my recipe. So I only tested it, but I didn't, I didn't live with it like everything else. You know, I do have a handful of recipes in the book where they're prepared by other people, but I feel like, you know what? I'm just going to ask permission to print them because I don't need to improve on those. Right. And that was one of it. But when I say steps, it's like every, everything else. Maybe there's an order in which it was, it, the ingredients were added. Uh, maybe they were folded in a different way. I'm not sure how it differ, if it differs from Ruth, but when I'm saying there's not a lot of technique, egg whites weren't whipped and added. Um, pastry wasn't laminated, you know, I mean, so those, when I say that those kind of technical processes were not part of this best cheese, it's pretty much made in a mixing bowl, right, Ruth? Well, or do you uh, need a one, paddle and a freestanding mixer? Or that's no, the difference I mean, between actually, Dave's and I got I got my recipe from there is a restaurant in San Sebastian, which see invented, there you go. And you walk walk in there, it's a tapas place, but there are like literally yeah. dozens and dozens, yeah. maybe like a hundred Basque cheese well, there. And they sell them all in a night. I uh, mean, it's what they're famous yeah. for. And I was there in what, twenty, I, I don't know, 10, ten years ago, twelve years ago. And I loved it so much, I asked them for the recipe. And so that's the recipe. The only thing, refinement I've made is theirs is to be made in a stand mixture, mixer. And I find it much better in a food processor because ah, wow. it, 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 it whips the ingredients much more thoroughly than what happens in a stand mixer. And Ruth, what was it about Nancy's recipe? Was there a step that you thought, I don't want to do that? Or Yeah. I mean, I can't remember it. I went to make it. I, I was having a dinner party and I thought, oh, I'm going to use Nancy's recipe. And then, you know, I got like three three minutes into it and I went, oh, I'm not doing this. <laughs> and I can't remember what it was I wasn't going to do. but Because sometimes I find in Nancy's recipe that they look long, but there's explanation. You know, there's like, there's more explanation than you would get in many recipes that tell you what things are supposed to look like and feel like. And so that's. Well, I always I say I try to set them. people up for success, you know, so it's easy to brush over all those things. It's easy to say, cream the butter, add the sugar, drizzle in the egg, fold in the egg whites and pop it in the oven. But people don't necessarily know how long it takes to cream butter or what that means to look like, or do you use a paddle attachment or a whisk? You know, all those things do matter, but sometimes people look at the recipes and think, oh no, I can't make that. It's too long. We should talk about your carrot cake. You just brushed over that, that you roast the carrots, but that that's a step that most people might not do, but you found it made a big difference. And, and, and that also that you used to hate carrot cake. No, I love carrot cake. Oh, what was it? Oh, some of the oh, things. No, no, I hated uh, lemon bars. <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. <laughs> but no, carrot cake, I've always loved. And there's, there's like, there's probably at least three things that I love about this 
carrot cake that I think have revolution that will revolutionize carrot cake. Now, so the first thing was that I wanted, you know, again, I could have just made another carrot cake. I could have carrot cake is always the same. It's an oil-based cake. And yes, I tried to make it with uh, butter one time and it just isn't as good. So we are, we all agree it's a butter-based cake. We can argue if we want nuts oil or no nuts. Or sorry, we all agree it's an oil-based cake, it's right? It's an oil-based cake. Yeah, it has say, to be. I mean, no, it. but nuts or no nuts, raisins or no raisins. Pineapple or no pineapple. Right, those are all personal and negotiable, right? But one thing I never was satisfied was that a carrot cake never tasted like carrot cake. We always knew that it had all those shredded carrots and it was the healthier version of a chocolate layer cake, right? Because we're getting some vitamins in there. But it always bothered me that it didn't taste like carrots. So um, I talk about going into the pastry department, which was really in those days, one other person. Uh, uh, her name was Diana. And I kind of said, Diana, do you have any, have you ever heard of anything different that anyone has ever done to a carrot cake, and she's probably had that up to that point and never said more than six words to me. She said, yes, I saw somebody once roast carrots and fold that in. And I'm like, uh, I'll be borrowing that idea. So I roasted my carrots and I added them into the carrot cake. I saw that I still needed those shredded carrots more for look than flavor. And out came the most delicious flavored carrot cake I had ever had. So I wasn't happy at just that it was the most delicious carrot cake. I now needed to tap the frosting and everything else about it. So I turned that cream cheese frosting because ladies, do we all agree a carrot cake has to have definitely definitely cream cheese frosting? I mean, you right. can't vary that. But I turned it into a brown butter cream cheese frosting because the cream cheese frosting is always cream cheese and butter, right? It's not just cream cheese. So adding that brown butter cream cheese flavor really gave it a whole nother level of complexity that actually worked. But then I thought, what do we not like about carrot cakes? And I know that what I never liked when early on in my days when I wasn't uh, more of a seasoned baker, I couldn't stand slicing that cake into three and trying to build a straight-looking, symmetrical carrot cake. Once I got to that third layer, everything started to topple and got even worse when I started to frost the sides. And I was just never happy at that leaning tower that I, <laughs> with the bulging sides that I created. And so what I did is I, I baked the carrot cake in a decorative mold and turned it out of the mold and it was, you know, basically a bunt pan mold, right? With a with a, a spiral. It was a spiral cake mold. And instead of slicing it in half at all, I just completely frosted in between the indentations of that mold and sprinkled oh, nice. on walnuts. And I'm like, well, this is going to be life changing. And, you know, I mean, I'm sorry to be such a bragger, but this book is so new and I'm really proud of the recipes. So. I can't help but toot my own horn, but like that's a great example of what I did in this book that home cooks may not do. They may just follow their, those recipes and continue year after year to add that half a teaspoon of vanilla extract 
and think that a carrot cake has to have three layers and be frosted on the sides and it doesn't have to taste like carrots. Can can I just add, since you're talking yeah. about doing it in a bun pan, uh-huh. one of for me, one of the life-changing things in my life is a silicon bun pan. Yep. Because um, I bake a lot of cakes in bun pans and washing those bun pans is such a pain. And with the silicon ones, you just rinse them out and dry them again. Yeah. And I what's mean, also great about bun, bun pans in general, though, is that the laborious part of a dessert or a cake is finishing it, right? And they're self-decorated, you know, with a little powdered sugar or a sprinkling of nuts, it's finished. And I I think, I thought you were going to say discovering the joys of bun pans. At one point in some interview, I had said to somebody, you know, I have to say, no matter how many years I've been cooking in a kitchen, I've never felt like a chef. And they wanted me to qualify why I said that, you know, and I said, well, I I just never feel a chef to me is somebody or something that I will never or I have never achieved that status. Um, And I kind of left it at that, but I never was able to really elaborate on what uh, what I meant. And so I was reading Le Brief and you were talking, and I'm not sure what the subject of that Le Brief was. But it segued into you talking about this incredible meal you had years ago with your family where you brought them to a meal you didn't think you were going to enjoy, but you loved. It was in London and it was Heston Heston Blumenthal's uh, dinner. Yeah. And it was Heston Blumenthal's dinner. And you didn't think like anyone would love it, but you all did love it. And so you printed the menu, right? And you talked about and you had pictures and you talked about the course, the different courses. And I'm reading this menu thinking, okay, this is a menu of a chef. This is a menu I could never write and make it taste good because I couldn't not, not only did I not have the, the, the knowledge, the technical skill or the background or the experience to bring in what this menu was all about. And maybe you could walk us through all this, but let me, before you do, I want to say, then I was thinking, uh, that made me think, okay, this is what I'm talking about. I will never be this kind of a restaurant chef, right? And then I got to think about other people. And I thought, do I think of Alice Waters as a chef or do I think she is such a great cook? Did I think of Judy Rogers? And I'm talking about people that I really admire. Did I think of Judy Rogers as a chef? Did I think of her as Chef Judy? Or did I think of her as a great cook? And I'm asking you this, Ruth and Lori, because this is also you, your world. Do you ever, do you think of anybody that heads a kitchen as a great chef, no matter what the restaurant is, no matter what you're eating, or do you think of, I mean, like, do you think there's a difference? Like, do you think Alice Waters is a chef or a I don't think Alice cook would or say- a restaurant? Alice isn't a trained chef. Either I mean, am I, I. for me, what exactly? And I'm, what for me, the difference between a chef and a cook is training, really. I mean, okay. you know, so you, Dominique Crenn is a chef, right? Okay. Yep. Absolutely. Um, um, Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Fenegers 
they're chefs. I mean, they right. both and I, went to school to learn how to do that trade. Right. And I think that like when you eat at Mary Sue or Susan's restaurant or you eat at my restaurant or Alice's restaurant or when you ate at Judy's restaurant or when you eat at April Bloomfield's restaurant or Suzanne Goen's restaurant, what you eat at their restaurant is the same as what you're going to eat at their house. And when you eat at Dominique Krent's restaurant, you're not going to eat the same thing that you're going to eat at her house. Except you trained Nancy in Paris. Yeah, but not. And, and sure, I wouldn't I, call. But I wouldn't call you a home cook. So I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like is there another word we need, or is it because you are not a home cook, Nancy? You no, you are not. You, a you home have cook. you have. There's an obsession well, you have. And same thing with Mary Sue. I, I, I mean, yes, I've had her food at her house, but also at the restaurant. And and, there's and you could be eating either way. You could be served or she could serve you, right? I mean, yeah, it, it would be the same. There's an obsession that you chefs have that, um, yes, yes, a home cook can be obsessed too. Um, there are project home cooks and, and all, of, all of that. But there's still something... But that, that Heston, that you, Heston menu was brilliant, Ruth. Oh, I, I know that there's, there's styles of restaurants. I mean, there are restaurants that are comfortable and neighborhood restaurants. And- but are we all chefs then? I mean, like what other, I guess actors are actors, right? No matter who they are, I guess musicians are musicians. So maybe chefs are chefs and maybe I'm just looking at it too literally what i don't know what do you think ruth well i i i really do think that there's a difference between the people who went to school to be trained to be chefs and the people who became chefs and i think they're all chefs but there there is a there is a real clear distinction um and you know and also Part of it is timing. So you've been doing this for such a long time now that even if you don't want to think of yourself as a chef, you have become a chef, even though you didn't go to school. I mean, you've been you've been doing it for what? How many years have you been pro- cooking well, professionally? Professionally, I would say if I started at Michael's was 79, I think a little before that, 77. And I did go to school, but a very short time, you know. I had classes at Lenote, right, for pastry. I um, went to the Cordon Bleu for their, you know, half a year certificate class. These are not long cooking classes. And I never worked under uh, chefs that had those kinds of kitchens that I feel like Dominique maybe worked under. I don't know where Heston worked. We know that Wolfgang certainly worked under a lot of people, you know. I mean, I worked under Jonathan Waxman, who is incredibly talented. Um, and he was a good, um, you know, a good um, mentor and a good un- a person that really understood food. And same with Wolfgang, but maybe I didn't get some of those technical. And Mary Sue and Susan had that French training. Right. They- oh, absolutely. They both had, they both went full time to um, chef schools. Right. But they they rejected that style. Partly out of that experience, you know that that high cuisine French style. Yeah, I mean they they brought themselves to their kitchens, um, and a lot of people just 
you know, go to cooking school, go to chef school and continue doing what they were told to do for the rest of their careers. No, it's like that thing where they you're told, you know, you need to know the rules to break the rules. Yeah, exactly. Which I think you do to a certain extent. But like, what were some of those? I mean, I'm reading that menu thinking, wow. So, I mean, the interesting thing about Heston is in both the Fat Duck, which was his yeah. first restaurant, which was like one of the first molecular gastronomy yes, exactly. restaurants. I mean, he's a really intellectual chef. Mm-hmm. So he went and, you know, talked to all the people, the, the scientists who were taking food apart at that point. I mean, there's this guy, Hervé Thies, who wrote the sort of guidebook for molecular chefs. And, you know, Heston read all of that. He, you know, was really interested in the early history of ice cream making. And when he decided, you know, when he was asked to do this restaurant at the Mayfair in London, he started researching historical recipes. So, you know, one of the dishes on that menu is salmagundi, which was yeah. essentially the first salad. Yeah. And he, you know, he can tell you exactly, you know, the recipe is from 1720, I think. And he takes that recipe and makes it something for modern consumption. I mean, the most famous dish there is this thing he calls meat fruit which looks exactly like a tangerine. Yeah, I, that picture was stunning. But is liver pate. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the medieval times, you know, in the like 13th century, they loved making food that looked like something else, right? They loved doing these trompe things. And, you know, he did that. And he just went and looked at um, all these old recipes and we made them um, so that they would be palatable to a modern audience. And it's fascinating. I mean, I wish more people were doing that. I, I wish I would love to go out and eat, you know, eat history yeah. um, once a month. No, but I was just um, reading through that. And not only did he know the history, but he had the technical skill to be able to pull that off. And that's yes. where I was well, thinking, okay, so that's a chef. Yeah, he's a chef. You know, when, when I think about a chef, the first person who pops into my mind is Michelle Richard. I was just going to say that. I was um, just going to say that. You know, I mean, and especially because he was one of those people who was trained in both pastry yep. and um, then, you know, took those pastry skills and used them to make other food. And and he was kind of the best kind of chef in that he was endlessly curious. He was always, you know, I mean, he had that, you know, faux gras. How do you make something that's like foie gras, but um, doesn't mean you have to torture the animals? Right. And I think he was like you, Nancy, where I think he would often go to France and come back with what you call takeaways and then make them, you know, when he was cooking in Los Angeles, he would make them a California version, then he went to D.C., but um, he was amazing. I just, I will never forget. He came to my house once for Thanksgiving, and he carved the turkey in 10 seconds. <laughs> I mean, it was just amazing to watch him do it. It was just, he was technically just so proficient. As the person so do who you have the turkey, to... I don't do that. <laughs> but do you have, so 
what do we, what's the takeaway? We're all chefs. I can now say, well, I, I feel like a chef or I, cause Nancy, I, you are a chef. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> you are a chef. I mean, there might be, you know, uh, you know, when we go to like certain kinds of restaurants, maybe there's professional cook, home cook and chefs. I don't know. I don't know. But, oh, you know, one other thing about Michel Richard is, you know, he was one of the first people at Citrus to have the open kitchen. And you remember that piece, Ruth, I did where it's like, watch, you know, there's that show. I mean, now it's so common to have open kitchens and we all love watching chefs work. But there was that point where I realized, you know, not only are we watching them work, they're watching us eat. And now, of course, I guess some places even have cameras and all that. Cameras but, under the table. Wait, was did Citrus open before Spago? No, Spago, Spago was really well. That's a okay. true open kitchen. But in terms of it was the the design of the restaurant yeah. was just so you know. Yeah. No, I think no, I think what it was was that probably Michelle probably saw as Spago being an example how important it was to. For the kitchen, not only for the dining room to see the kitchen, but for the kitchen to be part of the dining room. But being French, he couldn't just have an open kitchen like that. So he put the whole kitchen behind glass. And that's what was different. You know, it was like a viewing window. Right. Yeah. And it was spectacular. It was like a, but um, it was like a TV show. Yeah. But maybe, Nancy, you could tell. So what was it like to cook in Spago's open kitchen and then? Like and would you? I mean, I know you're doing dessert and things, but still, I mean, what what was that interaction like? Well, kind of so exactly early. what I was saying. That was early, and what one of the first that had that had that uh, the kitchen in the dining room. And if you've you know remember, obviously Campanile, and now every restaurant I open, that kitchen is part of the dining room because. I saw so quickly on, again, not just so the diners can see what's going on in the kitchen, that that theater, they're part of that theater, but it's so important, I think, for the kitchen to see who they're cooking for, you know, and it just makes, it just makes that experience complete. And boy, did I love when I got to be behind the mozzarella bar or Thursday nights at Campanile where there was true interaction. You know, where Your grilled you really, cheese nights. Yes, exactly. Where I really got to, you know, have that interaction with the um, with the people sitting at the bar. I think that might be when we got to know you the best. When we would go every Thursday night and sit at the bar, and you'd make grilled cheese sandwiches, and Nick would be the bartender there, and you guys would banter back and forth. You you talk to the customers. Yeah, no, I think it's a great place for a cook to be because a cook is the most comfortable when they're making food. I don't, even though Wolfgang, for instance, is so great about walking around the dining room, I'm not sure how much he loves it or how comfortable he is. But when you're behind the counter in your element and you have the food to kind of help through that awkward moments, it's just... It's uh, it just makes the experience, I think, so much uh, easier. One more question I have from watching people is like, would you ever see someone have a negative reaction to your food and then you're having to see it up close? 
Definitely. And you just try to just not pay attention and kind of look the other way. So there's uncomfortable moments to having, you know, and there's also uncomfortable moments because sometimes you're really busy and kind of in the weeds and then somebody wants to chat and it's, you know, it can be, it could be difficult. So there are some negative parts, but for the most part, I think that, that I, I love that because, um, I had my food as my buffer. Yeah. And it seems like part of cooking is about being generous. And that's what you guys do a lot. You're sharing. Yeah. And then you can hand a little something over a little extra, you know, to the people in front of you. I think that is feel special. Lori, do you remember that piece Jonathan wrote about the, the sushi effect where he essentially said that, I mean, it was, he made a whole case. I think he was writing about Nobu, but he made a whole case for people liking that getting the food directly from the chef's yeah. hand so much that he felt that it was part of what had spurred on the open kitchen uh, movement. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was in Lima at the this small restaurant. It's actually a Venezuela uh, a chef who had worked with Rogelio Martinez and then opened uh, his own place nearby. And it's this tiny room, and you know, I mean, there's a, more upstairs, but but sit you sit and watching the chefs cook, and you get the food directly from the chef, but also just watching the dance of the chefs because there there was no need for them to say corner or anything because there is no there's no space <laughs> as they just instinctively knew how to work with each other yeah. and it was like watching a beautiful dance production services for three ingredients are provided by voltage it is produced by j.e peterson and edited and mixed by ness smith savadoff the music for this show was provided by Alex Mastronardi and Richard Farrell. Before you go, don't forget to join us at threeingredients.substack.com if you haven't already. It's a great place to ask your burning culinary questions, share your own food stories, and meet other people obsessed with food. We love hearing from you. Thanks again, and keep cooking. Keep cooking.